Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, we'll take a look at cyber power, how to define it, how to measure it, and who ranks on top globally. We hear about cyber on a daily basis, from its role in national economies, trade, political debate, to its use as a tool for espionage and coercion, and its perceived centrality as one of the primary determinants of success in war. State and non-state actors alike are increasingly leveraging cyber capabilities to achieve their strategic aims, and competition in cyberspace and over the norms that govern it is intensifying. However, despite the increasing importance of cyberspace in global politics, economics, and defense, there hasn't as of yet been a comprehensive qualitative assessment of national cyber power. The IISS has filled this knowledge gap with a groundbreaking new study that provides a net assessment of the cyber capabilities and national power of 15 countries, ranging from the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance to the countries viewed by them and their allies as cyber threats and countries at earlier stages in their cyber power development. And the results of the report aren't always what you might expect. Joining me to tell us more about this study today are Greg Austin and friend Stefan Gotti. Greg is the Senior Fellow for Cyber, Space, and Future Conflict and is based in the IISS's Asia office in Singapore. His expertise spans across cyber military policy and operations, national cyber policies, and cyber civil defense. He looks closely at Chinese, Russian, and Asia-Pacific regional security questions, as well as international law. Prior to joining the IISS, Greg worked at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, as a professor and deputy director of its multidisciplinary center for cybersecurity research. And at NUSW, he set up Australia's first master's degree in cyber war and peace. He's authored and edited numerous books on China's cyber issues and Asian regional security. And Greg has held posts in public service, including as a ministerial advisor, diplomat, and intelligence analyst. Now, if you've tuned into Sound Strategic before, you'll know Franz by now. For those who don't, he is the IISS's Research Fellow for Cyberspace and Future Conflict, based out of the IISS's brand new Berlin office. And at the Institute, Franz focuses on the future of war, strategic technologies, European and Asian security, as well as great power conflict. Prior to joining the IISS, he held various positions at the East-West Institute, the Project on National Security Reform, and the National Defense University. He conducted field research in Afghanistan and Iraq, where, among other things, he embedded with the Afghan National Army, NATO forces, and Kurdish militias. And he's also reported from a wide range of countries from conflict zones as a journalist. Welcome to the show, Greg, and welcome back, friends. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Maya. So, Greg, let's start with the motivation behind this report. Why was a net assessment of cyber capabilities and national power necessary, and what questions were you trying to answer? Well, thank you, Maya. The origins of this project really uh, predate my arrival in IISS. They arose out of consultations among practitioners in the field, working in uh, intelligence agencies uh, and in government departments, trying to understand what the trajectory of this uh, set of relationships was going to look like. And they thought, well, this really does depend a lot on the underpinnings of the capability of these countries and really how all of the different bits and pieces fit together to constitute cyber power. As you rightly said, uh, the uh, interest in this subject has intensified as states have become more willing to use cyber power and as states have become more insecure in the face of attacks from other people. So. Uh, the project wanted to understand how the economic bits fitted with the military bits uh, and with the political bits. 
And so with cyber power being notoriously difficult to define uh, and measure, what metrics do you look at in your study to define and measure it? Well, we decided to take a thematic approach, which really mirrors this uh, idea of seeing how the bits and pieces fit together. So a colleague of mine, Marcus Willett, who uh, really devised the methodology, uh, came up with seven categories of analysis, uh, uh, which he estimated would, uh, if we analyze them in some depth and then took them all together would enable us to form a very good view of how capable uh, each country was and how powerful it was in cyberspace. And those seven categories, if I can just quickly mention them, the first one is strategy and doctrine. Second one is governance, command and control. Third one, and very importantly, is core cyber intelligence capability. And one of the things that makes the IISS work in this area very different from any other is that we're the first to look very closely uh, at the central role of core cyber intelligence capability uh, in defining a state's cyber power. The fourth one is around the economic question of cyber empowerment, but it also picks up the issue of dependency and vulnerability in the globalized uh, internet space. The fifth one is cybersecurity and resilience. How well does a country defend itself uh, and how quickly can it recover from cyber attack? The sixth category was global leadership in cyberspace affairs. The proposition that your diplomatic activities can actually impact your cyber power. And then the final one, also very important and linked to core cyber intelligence capability. The final aspect was offensive cyber capability. So that's really how it all came together, multi-vector, multi-sector, uh, and really comprehensive. I mean, you've taken a qualitative approach to this research uh, in your methodology. Is a quantitative research methodology uh, possible, do you think? Uh, and what benefits does a qualitative approach have here? What we found when we looked at it and what uh, Marcus found, I guess, uh, was that uh, some of the existing approaches which tried to put a number value on these very, uh, what's the word, nebulous sorts of concepts like strategy and doctrine uh, were not really that useful uh, and really led to some rather misleading sort of judgments. And we felt that uh, given the lack of uh, hard knowledge, if you like, or hard fact about many aspects of cyber capability, bearing in mind that these are some of the most sensitive security secrets that any state has, uh, we felt that it was more important probably to go down the qualitative route than to try and replicate uh, existing studies that rely a little bit on you know, indexing and, and categorizing states very precisely in a ranking and, and numbering sort of system. Uh, we thought we'd try and understand them more by uh, giving an overarching assessment of each of these different components of cyber power rather than trying to put a number on it. So let's move on to your findings and a question that I'm sure our listeners will have at the front of their minds. According to your net assessment, is China the world's leading cyberpower? Well, we found, in fact, that uh, the China is not the world's leading cyberpower. Uh, we developed the, an approach which put countries into three tiers of cyberpower. The first one was uh, uh, a country that was strong in all of those seven aspects of cybersecurity that we mentioned. Uh, the second tier of cyber power would be countries that had world-leading strengths in a couple of categories uh, and but possibly weaknesses in others. And the tier three countries were those countries 
uh, with some strengths in some of the categories, in some aspects of the categories, but significant weaknesses in others. And we found that there's only one country in the world which had world-leading strengths in all seven categories of our methodology, and that was the United States. Uh, and uh, we can go into the detail of that uh, perhaps a bit later, but most interestingly, in the second tier of cyber power, we put China, so everyone could understand that you know, China is very powerful uh, in cyberspace. We put Russia, uh, everyone would sort of understand that Russia might be somewhere up there in the constellation of cyber power. But what was really interesting about uh, the way we worked this was that countries like Israel, Australia, the UK and France were also in that second rank of cyber power. All of the countries in the second rank had strengths in different aspects of cyber power. So, for example, the Chinese ICT economy is massive. How could little Israel or little Australia possibly be compared with China in terms of uh, cyber power in the broad? Well, the answer was that countries like uh, Australia, Israel, the UK and France all have uh, really strong core cyber intelligence capability that can be focused more directly, more flexibly uh, and more uh, capably uh, in the area of offensive cyber operations. So for all of China's immense power and all, for all of China's immense cyber espionage capability, we didn't see evidence that China had been able to refocus that uh, into what you might call the application of cyber power for offensive uh, military purposes or even for persuasive diplomatic purposes. And you looked at in your study, of course, the different actors within a national uh, system that contribute to cyber power. Did you find that um, civilian cyber agencies, for example, weighed more powerfully than military cyber agencies or are military cyber agencies just newer? Well, that's a very interesting question. And your last uh, part of the question actually points to part of the problem. We actually found that the civilian intelligence agencies uh, or the traditional intelligence apparatus in almost every country was so powerful in shaping cyber policy that the military organizations in almost every country hadn't really emerged as powerful actors uh, on the stage in framing uh, national cyber power. Uh, and you can point to countries like uh, the United States, which has been looking at the military aspects of cyberspace for decades. Uh, and you can certainly see that they've got a relatively mature position but even in the US application of cyber power, the intelligence agencies are a, are a dominating influence uh, and almost everything that happens in cyberspace uh, of any consequence coming from the United States is dominated by the intelligence apparatus. That's definitely the case in China and Russia. Uh, but interestingly, of course, in Russia, the GRU, the Russian military intelligence, is actually one of the dominating agencies in uh, cyberspace operations. But what they do is largely covert operations uh, and offensive operations uh, of the sort that um, civilian agencies do in the United States. Uh, so that idea of civil military, the split isn't the same in every country, but what is what has emerged is that the traditional intelligence agencies have remained absolutely dominant and very few of the military organizations have been able to sort of, in a sense, move toward fulfillment of the full promise of cyber capability in the military sphere. 
Yeah, Franz, I'm going to bring you in here um, uh, with regards to um, the role of cyber in military operations. I mean, how well integrated do you think military cyber is across armed forces in the countries that were studied? I think that's really uh, an excellent question. And um, maybe just before that, if I can build up uh, upon what, what Greg just said, I thought one of the more interesting findings also when it comes to the civil military divide in our study has been that um, those countries then that can afford really the largest investments in terms of personnel and money, um, such as the United States and China, uh, tend to maintain a much clearer separation between military and civilian owned uh, cyber capabilities, we found. Um, and even where uh, military civilian cooperation is extremely strong. And then there's this uh, approach uh, in particular by countries such as Australia, France, Israel, and the UK that really tend to uh, focus more on a fused military civilian approach when it comes to conducting um, at least offensive cyber operations. And I think this is really largely due to a lack of resources. And uh, the idea here is probably that a lack of resources uh, is compensated by arguably a great operational agility. And I think the jury here is still still uh, out whether that's a successful approach or not. Uh, but of course, it's, uh, it's something that we should keep an eye on. Um, to talk about your uh, question. I think it really points to this problem of how best to measure uh, cyber military maturity. And one approach I think that uh, at least I've been taking in my research also, and it's partially reflected in the study, is really to see how well uh, cyber operations are integrated with other military operations. And I think here we are still very much uh, in our infancies when it comes to assessing this, but also uh, militaries, I think, are still in the process of trying to figure out how to effectively integrate cyber offensive cyber military operations into overall uh, concepts of operations. That is even true for the United States, although we've seen a lot of interesting uh, operations being conducted over the last couple of years. Uh, a few have been declassified, at least uh, partially declassified, for example, uh, Task Force Ares. Uh, that was a joint uh, US task force that was uh, conducting offensive cyber operations um, against ISIS. And they were really deploying the full spectrum of cyber operations from uh, information operations um, that is uh, just influencing ISIS, uh, ISIS operatives, uh, shutting down websites, uh, manipulating emails, phishing attacks, uh, and so forth to gain access to systems, um, all the way really to more complex tactical cyber operations that are really in many ways very similar to electronic warfare operations, although a bit more targeted and sophisticated, and we can go into this in more detail later, but where they actually, for example, um, tried to get into the, the video feed of a drone, manipulate drones, spoofing, um, and so forth forth. So um, to answer your question, um, it, it, the United States is probably the most integrated country out there when it comes to fusing uh, the fusion of uh, military cyber capabilities with uh, so-called kinetic uh, capabilities, but I think there's still a long way to go. And I think it's also reflective of uh, the doctrinal debate that is happening right now in the United States around this idea of uh, joint all domain command and control, all domain operations and so forth, where the core idea of this is, um, and I quote US doctrine here, is the imposition of multi uh, quote unquote multiple cognitive dilemmas on the adversary. And I think cyber here plays a very, very important role in the cognitive uh, warfare domain. What I find most interesting is from my analysis of doctrine so far, a lot of it refers to the so-called competition phase. So the phase before actual high intensity war fighting or, or the outbreak of an actual um, military conflict, which I think um, 
also points to one of the weaknesses we haven't really studied properly yet, at least in the unclassified realm, the use of offensive cyber operations in high-intensity warfighting. We tend to focus on other aspects of it, and I think this is a gap that I'm also trying to close with my research. Fascinating. Um, and just in terms of the different strategies, but what you just said, um, quoting the United States as uh, thinking on this, sounds quite similar to Chinese writing uh, on this. So I wanted to ask both of you, how different are uh, uh, the, the doctrines and strategies that underpin this between the 15 countries that you've looked at? Some of the interesting doctrinal differences uh, between the so-called West and our great power competitors, uh, so to speak. I think um, Beijing and Moscow, and this is also in our reflected in our study, when they talk about uh, offensive cyber, I think for them, it's really just a technical component of a wider information operations uh, capability. So Chinese and Russian cyber operations are as much about controlling their own information space, given the nature of their regimes, right? And at the same time, uh, subverting uh, uh, those of their adversaries. Um, as much as they are really about uh, penetrating an adversary's uh, adversary's critical information infrastructure, right? And I think, um, and, uh, and 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 Brad can jump in here maybe. I think this could have interesting implications for military uh, cyber power because it could imply that China and Russia are devoting less resources in comparison to the United States when it comes to developing the types of military offensive cyber capabilities that are used for um, uh, high-intensity warfighting, for example. Well, as a footnote to that, uh, I think that France is 100% correct to highlight the proposition that a country's political culture uh, and their history, in fact, uh, the organizational relationships between different parts of government uh, and the political style of the regime, so to speak, the political system, all shape the emerging relationship between cyber capabilities and how they're being used on the international stage. and. it would be very sort of tempting to try and imagine that what China is doing or will be able to do will emulate what the United States is trying to do or will be able to do. But really, the trajectory of development of cyber national power uh, in most of these big powers looks very different uh, according to which country it is. And uh, to go back to your original source question, Mayor, the uh, strategy and doctrine can be interpreted as if they're the same in these different countries, but in fact, they're, they're very, very different because the organizational setting is different. Uh, and in fact, the predisposition in the United States to having highly developed doctrine, very finely and precisely worked out uh, organizational structures and legal authorities uh, simply doesn't exist uh, in either Russia or China. And in fact, if you scratch below the surface um, in Russia, I would suspect there's very little doctrinal development along in the same way as we're seeing it um, in countries like the United States. We hear a lot about the offensive cyber operations by China and Russia, um, but not of the United States. And from what both of you have been saying, to the United States is the main uh, is the strongest actor potentially here. Um, so how come we have such a skewed view of Chinese and Russian offensive cyber power? Well, the answer lies really in the openness of the United States society in the way it reports on what other governments do. Uh, so, for example, uh, almost everything we know about Russian and Chinese cyber operations comes from United States intelligence agencies. And, of course, the United States intelligence agencies don't report on their own operations. Uh, so, for example, uh, 
the uh, we can assume that the United States is undertaking regular offensive cyber operations of one sort or another against uh, a number of countries, whether it's China, Russia or Iran. We know, for example, that US president has made presidential findings that uh, authorised the CIA uh, and NSA to undertake offensive uh, cyber operations against particular governments. Uh, so we really just don't have the information that's being collected. There's a big asymmetry of information. The media uh, takes us in the direction of focusing and concentrating on China, what Russia and China are doing, but the media doesn't take us in the same way uh, to understand what the United States is doing. The big exception was the Snowden revelations, uh, and there are other occasional revelations uh, which give us insight. But by and large, we know far less about the operational activities of United States uh, intelligence agencies and cyber agencies than for Russia and China. And if I could add a very quick footnote to that, another source of information about the operations of Russia and China are Western cyber security companies. Uh, and they're definitely not interested in spilling the beans on US cyber operations. They like to uh, give wonderful accounts of what the Chinese and Russians are doing to show how strong these companies are in cybersecurity because they can detect all of those operations. But because they get big contracts from the US government, they're not, they're not willing to spill the beans on the US. Just to build on what uh, Greg has been saying here, I think it's also important to perhaps point out that um, in our report, uh, when we use the term offensive cyber, we really mean operations in cyberspace that deliver that deliver um, an effect rather than those principally intended to gather intelligence, right? And I think this is an important distinction, although it's a bit of a tricky one, right? And uh, there are various other terms that we are uh, that, that are commonly used for offensive cyber operations, including computer network attack, uh, computer network operations, cyber enabled information operations and warfare, cyber influence operations and cyber effects. Uh, um, and so forth. I do think that's important to to keep the distinction here still uh, between intelligence and 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 offensive cyber operations that actually uh, can range from distributed denial of service attacks that is just perhaps shutting down um, a website all the way to um, cyber operations that could actually trigger a physical destruction like we saw uh, with Stuxnet and then also for example attacks on on Ukraine's uh, power grid back in uh, 2014 and 20. 15. Another interesting point here, talking about the United States and offensive uh, cyber operations, is we know we have a pretty good understanding of what uh, the doctrine and strategy of United States Cyber Command is when conducting operations. Um, we have less uh, understanding when it comes to China and Russia to a certain degree. But what's, what I think uh, the character of offensive cyber operations, and I think that's important to understand for our listeners, um, is that any sort of uh, uh, offensive operation requires um, a long, long run-up time. It's sort of the equivalent to uh, uh, intelligence preparation of the battlefield, which every military officer is familiar with. You you sort of need cyber preparations of the future battle space, so to speak. So I think one, one uh, important aspect is to understand that in cyberspace, there's constant engagement. And indeed, uh, the United States Cyber Command has a persistent engagement uh, doctrine which uh, is also reflected in its uh, strategy that it published. And I think um, this is something something to keep in mind. That is that uh, the deployment of forward um, 
forward uh, deployed cyber assets, uh, so to speak, that are constantly probing adversary networks and so forth. And 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 I think this this of course could lead to um, various uh, types of escalation. And I think that's something also to be aware of, though. Thanks, friends. That's really helpful clarification. Um, I want to turn to something that Greg said before about how a country's political development, um, uh, governance models, all of those things impact um, cyber power and how that's leveraged at the end of the day. Um, but how much does cyber industrial strength matter when it comes to considering a state's cyber power? Well, in fact, that's probably as important or in fact, even an underpinning of what I talked about before when I mentioned core cyber intelligence capability, because the core cyber intelligence capability that a state has depends uh, in large part on your political history and how you, you know, what you've been through and how you've structured your agencies. But your core cyber intelligence capability is defined largely by your independent sovereign capability in cyber industry. So you don't employ foreigners in your cyber intelligence agencies to execute your cyber operations, you employ nationals. So if your workforce is operating um, at a high level and producing very skilled people in cyber technologies, then you can have uh, a high degree of core cyber intelligence capability. You can undertake effective uh, and sophisticated cyber operations. Uh, and so what we saw throughout all of the studies that the level of uh, what you might call cyber industrial complex, the state of the digital economy is really a pretty powerful determinant of uh, capability. And this is one of the main reasons why China is in the tier two of cyber powers, uh, not tier one. It's because Chinese cyber industrial complex is, according to Chinese specialists, much weaker than US cyber industrial complex. So the civil sector cybersecurity industry in China is relatively undeveloped compared with its aspirations uh, and, uh, and the like. On the other side of the coin, we put Japan in the third tier of cyber power, even though it's got a very powerful digital economy. So the Japanese digital economy, uh, it may not be the second in the world, but it's certainly the third in the world and actually better than China's in some respects. Uh, but because Japan doesn't have the highly developed offensive cyber capability, because its government has been reluctant to develop even cyber intelligence capabilities of the most basic kind, very slow in doing that. And France can say more about that perhaps, but you can have the, the fundamentally strong digital economy and not be a big cyber power, as in the case of Japan, but you can't be a big cyber power as China wants to be without having digital economy on the scale uh, and at the level of sophistication that you need to. So if China wants to be an equal cyber power with the United States, it has to have an equal digital economy uh, and it has to have an equal digital, uh, an equal cybersecurity industry domestically. That's fascinating. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about middle powers in your study. Of course, we can talk about China, Russia, and the U.S. Uh, for days, but but I want to talk about some of those other countries um, that that might go unnoticed or or not discussed as often. Um, what strengths did you find that they have that actually puts them into tier two or perhaps into tier three um, when it comes to their cyber power? And, um, and also, how can they compete with the larger powers? The intent of the government is one of the most powerful indicators of uh, whether a country is on the right path to becoming a cyber power or to exercising cyber power. Uh, and uh, when we look at uh, 
governments like Malaysia, for example, it started early. Uh, it was one of the uh, first movers in Southeast Asia in terms of developing policy in this direction, but it slowed down and they could never maintain their momentum. Uh, by contrast, for example, uh, the UK, France and Australia uh, have really been on this trajectory um, uh, for quite a while. Uh, the UK uh, has moved more consistently than either France or Australia. And that's partly to do with the intent uh, and the knowledge levels uh, and the background uh, of agencies like the uh, GCHQ in the UK. Uh, so there's a combination of political intent, political will, and historical experience. Uh, are, they're all really important. Uh, and so for newly independent countries, uh, into which category we can put, uh, for example, even Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, th these countries just didn't have the history of intelligence agencies uh, and organizational intent uh, that these much uh, older powers like UK, France uh, uh, had. And so and countries like Australia and Canada inherited that from Britain. So for the, the newly independent countries, India is a newly independent country, you know, in 1947, not newly recently, but uh, these they just did not have domestically those institutional strengths and that intent to develop these sorts of capabilities. Malaysia and Indo India are a little different because they did inherit, like Australia, the the British system, uh, special branch, you know, as a common uh, organization in each of those countries, you know, the spy, domestic spy agency, basically for internal security. Uh, but if you look at Indonesia, you know, they were really lacking uh, that sort of thing. And these countries have had to build it from scratch and not only have had to build the intent from scratch, the organizational culture from scratch, but also the digital economy. So uh, history matters. That's one of the most important things, I think, in a very simple terms you can take away from this. The United States benefits from its long history of tech development. Um, you know, the United States is the home of many of the advanced technologies for cyberspace. Uh, and uh, then you just look back at everybody's pathway, um, the, the middle powers, the lesser powers, the small powers, uh, but even China and Russia are heavily impacted by that, that pathway of, uh, of development uh, and political stability. Political stability is another really important thing. Uh, and those countries which have had political stability, uh, which Russia hasn't had for a couple of decades, really, uh, started to get it back now. Uh, China had a couple of big periods of political instability. Uh, countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia have had uh, political, what's the word, instabilities of, of a lesser kind. But, uh, but all of those things impact. Friends, how can middle powers compete? Just to build on what Greg has now uh, stated in a fairly comprehensive uh, manner, I think perhaps it's important to re-emphasize again the importance of alliances when it comes to cyber power, in particularly, uh, in particular when it comes to the middle powers here, uh, Five Eyes, for example, the informal intelligence alliance between um, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, the United States, uh, all the English-speaking uh, countries, Australia, and um, New New Zealand, right? And I think um, cyber, uh, well, intelligence alliances often translate into cyber alliances, at least um, when it comes to conducting uh, offensive operations, but also, of course, on the defense 
side. And I think this is something that, for example, China utterly, utterly uh, lacks. And one should not underestimate the power of cyber alliances in all of this, um, particularly for countries such as the United Kingdom or um, Australia, where, you know, countries that could never properly compete with uh, the cyber intelligence capabilities of a country like the United States. And I think where the United States is providing crucial, crucial cyber intelligence for Australian uh, United Kingdom uh, cyber operations, but also at the same time, going back to for example, uh, Japan. Japan probably can only conduct offensive cyber operations by relying on U.S. assets in multiple, multiple, multiple ways. And um, Japan, for example, is now considering conducting offensive cyber operations, or at least are planning uh, to put to put um, offensive cyber operations um, in, in like into uh, its overall force uh, future force structure. And I think here again, crucial for uh, this to succeed or fail will be the relationship that the Japan self-defense forces will have with um, U.S. armed forces or that is with U.S. Uh, cyber command and this. So I think alliances here is going to be crucial in the future as well. I wanted to end on two questions. For the countries that are currently ranked in the second tier in your methodology, what would they need to change or develop in order to rank in the first tier? Well, interestingly, Mayo, we found that uh, the answer is more or less the same for every country. The first tier is defined by world leading strengths in those seven categories. A country like China or Russia or the UK or France to graduate to tier one, they would have to have world leading strengths in those seven categories. And we made the judgment, in fact, that China was probably the only country in tier two with any prospect of advancing to tier one. And for China to reach tier one, we uh, concluded that they would have to make quite substantial changes in their domestic innovation system and that they have to make quite substantial changes uh, in uh, organizational culture uh, and in indeed in uh, things like military training uh, and military organizations. So uh, you can't achieve cyber power without all of those building blocks, the seven building blocks we started with. And so uh, for countries to graduate from one tier to another, they've just got to sort of begin to tick off those boxes of capability. One additional point to mention here is the importance of leadership when it comes to assessing uh, cyber military capabilities as well, or at least the potential for some of these countries to perhaps reach uh, tier one that is moved from tier two to tier one, or perhaps some of the countries from our tier three moved to tier two. And that is really um, this idea that leadership matters in all of this. Um, and if you go back uh, into military history, there have been various examples where countries, armed forces with limited financial resources and uh, not very well positioned geographically have done quite well by focusing on niche capabilities, emerging technological capabilities, such as cyber to actually gain a military advantage over an adversary. So I think we should pay very close attention in those countries also, who is actually going to make those leadership uh, decisions, who is actually going to be responsible for formulating doctrine, force structure, and all these other aspects that are really um, contributing to assessing uh, cyber military capabilities and ultimately cyber military power. The last question that I have is what risks impact cyber power? There are two quite important risks that are quite prominent in contemporary politics. The risk would be the uh, on one hand, could be economic. So the viability, the vibrancy of a country's economy. For example, if there were to be a sudden reversal uh, in the US economy, 
while China's economy continued to strengthen. Uh, I think that would put a very big dent, uh, not only in US cyber power, but also in allied cyber power. And I think the other risk flows really from what France was just talking about, and that's leadership. Political unity uh, is pretty fundamental to the continuous process that's needed to accumulate cyber power over time. Uh, and so what we're seeing in the United States today in terms of political disunity, uh, if you had to compare that, for example, with a couple of other countries, uh, uh, whether they're big or small, uh, you uh, might, uh, might feel that US cyber power is put at risk because of the emerging disunity, uh, whereas countries which are showing more unity probably have more capabilities. So political stability is pretty fundamental to the accumulation of cyber power. If I can perhaps give an answer from a more narrow military perspective and perhaps turn your question around by asking, what about if a country is too powerful in cyberspace, in particular a country like the United States? And when you look at something like a Taiwan uh, war scenario between the People's Republic of China and the United States, what about if the United States decides to employ offensive cyber operations at the outset or in the middle of a conflict? And these uh, cyber operations, given what we are also assessing in our report, China's weak or relatively weak uh, cyber defenses are quite successful or even too successful. That is that they interrupt uh, command and control nods of the People's Liberation Army, which of course are nuclear and conventional command and control nods. And to what degree this, for example, can trigger nuclear um, escalation. I've talked about this also in a chapter that I wrote for this year's uh, IISS Regional Security Assessment. But I think um, we just need also a better conversation on what these capabilities actually are and to what degree can they really impact um, overall um, strategic stability between great powers. Those are two really excellent points to end on and we've run out of time. So I want to thank you both for your insightful conversation and commend you on this really important and um, detailed piece of work. Um, and I hope to have you both on the podcast again soon. Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Maya. It was a pleasure as always. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you missed the official launch of the IISS report, Cyber Capabilities and National Power, a net assessment, you can still view a recording of the event online. Just visit the IISS website or its YouTube channel. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.